open up to Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, the very last verse of chapter 1, and then we'll be looking at chapter 2 as well. When Steve Shogren was the pastor of a vineyard church in Cincinnati, Ohio, he was feeling particularly discouraged one Monday morning after a very rough Sunday. And he says he announced to his wife, Janie, I'm quitting the ministry and I mean it this time. And she'd heard this kind of talk before, so she suggested, why don't you go for a drive and think things through? Usually that helps you when you're stressed out. And while you're out, could you be a sweetheart and pick me up a burrito? Well, Steve drove around for about an hour complaining to the Lord the whole time. And finally, he was in the fast food drive through lane to pick up Janie's burrito when he sensed the Lord speaking to him. He didn't hear an audible voice. Nothing came through the drive through loudspeaker. But in a subtle, quiet way, he sensed the Lord impressing a message on his heart. If you open the door, I will give you a gift. And even though this felt silly, Steve felt he had nothing to lose. So he opened the car door and he looked down and he saw embedded in the asphalt a tarnished penny. And this is what he wrote about the experience. I reached down to pry out the coin and I held it in my hand feeling less than thankful for this gift. <laughs> the Lord spoke to me again though. Many people in this city feel about as valuable as discarded pennies. And I've given you the gift of gathering people who seem valueless. Though these people are, are these are people that the world casts off, they have great value to me. And if you will open your heart, I will bring you more pennies than you know what to do with. And I'm telling you this story for a couple reasons. First, it's an example about how God can speak to us if we're open and if we grow our skills at listening. But second, Jonah, at least where he's at in Jonah chapter 2, feels like one of those discarded pennies, those castaway people. Not because others have discarded Jonah, but in his case, because he's discarded himself. God gave Jonah a job, and Jonah refused to do it. God spoke to him, and Jonah said, no way. And then Jonah took off, and he ran from God, far from God. Jonah did it intentionally. He was taking himself out of circulation. He was throwing his life away. In fact, when God sent the storm, getting Jonah's attention, calling Jonah to turn around, Jonah still said, nope, better to be thrown overboard in the raging sea. My life's not worth saving. I might as well be dead. I've discarded myself. I've chosen my own demise. And that's the attitude, it seems, of Jonah as he plunges helplessly into the deep stormy sea. And one of the elements of the story of Jonah that we haven't really picked up on yet is the biblical symbolism associated with the sea and its depths and its sea monsters. Think great fish. Let me give you a, a picture, and we'll put it up on the screen, um, of the way the Bible views the world. And excuse my beautiful artwork here. 
But it starts with the heavens. That's where God is. And then there are the mountains that stick up into the heavens. And that's where God tended to meet with people on Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, places like that. Then below the mountains was the land where people usually lived, kind of in the middle of the cosmos. And then as you went down toward the sea, there um, are the uh, coasts and the islands. And then below that, the sea itself. And in the sea, there are sea monsters and great creatures and great fish and whales. And the sea can be unpredictable. It can be tumultuous. It can be chaotic. Remember, we saw last Sunday, Scripture, we're not ready for that one yet, Evan. Scripture compares the the pagan nations who who, uh, conquered and exiled and persecuted God's people. Scripture compares those nations to stormy, chaotic waters of the sea especially before modern times and modern ships, the sea was a risky place. It was a a scary place, a place that you're not meant to live. After all, most people back then didn't even know how to swim. Then below the sea is the deep. No one can live there. And then finally, shale, which is the old Hebrew word that we translate grave, the place of the dead. Sheol was viewed, at least figuratively, as the lowest place, the place farthest from God. And so this was how people in Old Testament times viewed the world. This was the the mental map they had of the cosmos, of how reality was, of what reality was like. And so with this map in mind, let's map Jonah's journey. Jonah starts on the land. And on the mountain, no doubt, because Jonah, like all Israelites, would have periodically gone to the temple, which was on a mountain, to worship God there. That's the place of God's presence. But what do we learn about Jonah in chapter 1, verse 3? He's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. So he goes down to Joppa, a famous coastal seaport, and he sets out on the sea on a ship. A storm comes up. The sea becomes chaotic and threatening. Jonah says, throw me overboard. The sailors eventually do. And then listen to how chapter 2 describes Jonah's descent. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the currents engulfed me, and all your breakers and billows passed over me. So Jonah's in the sea now, right? And there are currents, there are waves. Then in verses 5 and 6, Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. Jonah's sinking to the depths. He uh, describes descending to the bottom. And the earth with its bars, he says, were around him forever. Jonah's describing dying here. As he summarized back in verse 2, I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. Where has Jonah wound up? He's gone from God's presence on the mountain, on the land, down to the coast, into the sea, farther and farther from life, farther from God's presence. Jonah wanted to get away from God, right? And his idea was to go to Tarshish, which was known as a far-off, exotic place. But where does running from God actually get Jonah? 
far, far away from God, which is where ultimately you only have emptiness and death. Jonah's become like a discarded penny on the street. Unseen, unsought, driven over by the traffic, worthless, forgotten. But the story's not over yet, right? In the depths of the sea, we meet a great sea creature who lives in the sea. A fearsome creature. Someone was asking me last Sunday what word Jesus used when he compared his burial to Jonah's being in the belly of the fish. And the word Jesus uses, which is the same word used by the Greek translation of the Old Testament and of Jonah, the word is not fish. It's literally sea monster. Remember I said last week, the the Hebrew word for fish, which is God, G-A-D, can be translated fish or whale or monster. And when the, the, the Greek translators of the Old Testament translate it, they don't pick the Greek word for fish, ichthus, but they choose the word ketos, which means sea monster. And, and that person said to me last week, and I didn't ask her if I could share this, so I won't say who, but she said, oh, so like the kraken. <laughs> And yes, that's perfect. That's the perfect way to think about it. Not that Jonah was literally eaten by the kraken, but that's the sort of fearsome image that the Greek word conveys and that people would think of when they thought of what happened to Jonah. The creatures of the sea, the monsters of the deep were feared. They were considered ominous and powerful creatures of chaos and destruction. By the way, just to reinforce this, now if we go to um, this next slide, here's a 4th century depiction from Italy of the creature that swallowed Jonah. A fearsome, they were obviously reading their Greek Bibles, a fearsome sea monster. And there are many other similar pictures in the artwork of the early church. And so that's where Jonah has wound up. Consumed by the kraken, so to speak. Could it be any worse for Jonah? Let's go to the next slide. And yet, and yet, the book of Jonah is inviting us to take a second look. To look at this map of the world and Jonah's experience in it through a different set of eyes. Because who sent the great storm on the sea in chapter 1 that imperiled Jonah's ship? The Lord did. God's in charge of the sea. God has it under control. And who stilled the storm as soon as Jonah was thrown into the sea? The Lord. And who prepared the great sea creature, the fish, the kraken, to swallow Jonah up? God sent it. God actually controls the monsters of the deep. Not to kill Jonah, but as it turns out, to save him. God flips the script here. God sends the kraken, Jonah, up from the mouth of the grave. Up from the deep, up from the sea, back onto dry land. The sea and the depths and their monsters and Sheol itself may be far from God, but they are not outside of God's control and God is not absent there. 
That's what we, uh, or why we began last Sunday with our opening reflection from Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. That's Jonah's experience. Okay, we can go to the the next slide. And that's what prompts Jonah's prayer. Yeah, it's a black one. Uh, In chapter 2, which we saw last Sunday, is a very sophisticated, styled psalm of thanksgiving. Which might mean that it was a psalm already in existence when Jonah prayed it. Jonah might have learned it as a child. People memorized and prayed week after week in the synagogue, the psalms back then, so they could pray them when they needed them. Maybe Jonah prayed this psalm from memory, or maybe he composed it in the fish's belly, either as it is now or in a rougher form, which he later edited and prettied up for publication. If you've ever written poetry, it's often a process, right? You might write something out of your heart in in a poignant moment and get the essence down, but then tweak it a little later and improve upon it. Regardless, what, what we need to realize about Jonah's prayer is that it's a psalm. In fact, it's a mashup. It's a weaving together of a whole bunch of other psalms. Do you know there are well over 15 lines from other psalms woven into this prayer? You'll just read through the psalms. You'll come across lines and you're like, that reminds me of Jonah. Whoever first wrote this, whether it was Jonah or someone else, that person had been praying the psalms for years. Letting the psalms shape their thoughts, their language, the instincts of their heart, the movements of their spirit. And so the Psalms are shaping how they thought about God, how they addressed God, how they responded to God. And so when they didn't have words in a moment of crisis, the Psalms gave them the words. And Jonah's not praying his own words here. He's praying what he's learned from God's word back to God. It's a great way to pray and to learn to pray. And what we learn from this psalm is that God is present and God is at work even in the depths and all the way down to Sheol. Verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. The Lord, so far away, is all the way up in heaven, and I'm all the way down here at the gates of Sheol. I'm about to die, yet all the way here, God hears my cry. And even more amazing, God answers me. God didn't give up on me or cast me away like a tarnished penny after all. No, God answered me. And then verses 6 and 7, you brought up my life from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple all the way from the depths up to the mountains into heaven itself. 
Jonah's prayer came up to God, and God saved him. And so the prayer ends, salvation belongs to the Lord. And then verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. God is in control even of the fearsome monsters of chaos. So the distance from heaven to Sheol isn't really so far after all. Not when God's involved. The God of heaven and earth, land and sea, who made it all and has it all under control and under his watchful eye. That was Jonah's experience. It's the testimony that he brings back from the depths, from the gates of Sheol themselves. He learns something new about God. He experiences it personally. Like that discarded penny, no matter how cast away he felt, no matter how unworthy, no matter how disobedient or closed off to God he'd been, when he cried out, God was quick to save him. Jonah was still valuable to God and still valued by God. And you are too. You are too. One of the things I noticed last Sunday, as in smaller groups after the service, we had opportunities to reflect on Jonah. I noticed that a lot of us relate to Jonah, but we each relate to him in different ways. One person last Sunday was reflecting on, they can sometimes be arrogant and rebellious like Jonah. If you tell them to do X, it makes them want to do the opposite. Another person said they struggle like Jonah did at times with with not being glad to be alive. Um, Life feels so hard sometimes that they wonder if it might be easier for their life to be over. A, A third person said they feel like That like Jonah, they're not ready to see the full truth yet. They're not fully open to God. And it's comforting to know that it wasn't too late for Jonah. And that means it's probably not too late for them either. For me, like I said last Sunday, sometimes when I try to listen to God's voice, like Jonah, I'm afraid of what God might tell me. That it won't be good, that I won't like it very much. And so I find myself bracing myself as if God's going to ask me to do something uncomfortable or embarrassing or hard if I listen. And it's not so much that Jonah learns that God never asks anything hard. God certainly does sometimes. It's that good and hard aren't opposites. You can go to the next slide, Evan. Sometimes the road to good leads through hard. That was true for Jonah. Can you you think of times in life where that's the case? What about wanting to make the varsity team? The good. But it means you've got to practice a lot and train and discipline yourself and eat right. The hard. (laughs) Or what about getting a better job? The good. It might mean taking risks and uh, retraining, gaining some new skills, uh, doing work of a job hunt. The hard. 
Or what about facing surgery that will heal and rectify a health problem? The good. But the surgery itself and the recovery and the physical therapy and the pain management afterwards, the hard. Although we have some amazing physical therapists, uh, some of whom we know and love, who we would love to spend time with. (laughs) Or, Or what about becoming more emotionally healthy in our relationships, in our family, in how we handle things? That would be good. But it takes counseling, doing the inner work, facing your stuff, dealing with Stuff, working through old memories and experiences, retraining your brain, hard. Often the road to good leads through hard. And so we might occasionally hear God telling us some hard things. Jonah did. But that doesn't mean those things aren't very good in the end. And what Jonah's problem is at the beginning of the story in chapter 1 is that he can't see the good that there might be in the hard thing that God is asking him to do. Yet now in chapter 2, in the belly of the fish, as he prays the words of this psalm, Jonah experiences surprisingly, unexpectedly, the goodness of God. Jonah feels like that discarded penny but he experiences God lovingly seeing him, valuing him, prying him up out of the asphalt and taking him to himself as something precious. And this gives Jonah hope. He's grateful for it. Slowly, like lighting a candle in a dark place, Jonah has a spark of hope inside the fish that God might be good and then there might be a good life ahead of him. All right, we can go to the next slide. Before we apply all of this to hearing God's voice, as we're doing each week, I want to reflect briefly on on what we can learn here that can help us when we're talking to someone, when we're trying to walk with someone who's going through deep, dark times. Here's where we can go wrong when we're trying to comfort or walk alongside of someone who's suffering. We can go wrong when we assume that hard is incompatible with good. When we assume that hard is always bad and that easy is good. So how can we go wrong when we assume hard is bad and and easy is good? Well, next slide. If, If we're trying to comfort someone and we think hard is bad, we may try to wish away their hard with platitudes or, or trite easy answers, which often we give more to make ourselves feel better than really because we've thought about how to help that person. So things come out of our mouth like, oh, it'll be all right. Or you've got a lot to be thankful for. Focus on that. Or don't feel bad. Just trust God. True, though they may be, none of these things are helpful or comforting nine times out of ten. Maybe they comfort the person saying them, but they don't comfort the person you're trying to comfort. Don't wish away the hard. It's hard. Let it be hard. Empathize with the hardness. Just be there with the person. 
the next slide. The other thing we shouldn't do is try to rescue people from what's hard. And this is especially true for parents with our kids. Yes, we want to comfort our kids. We want to protect them. We want to keep them from suffering. And sometimes this is appropriate. But in, in parental wisdom, we need to realize there are moments where because we want to raise them to be resilient and strong and to be responsible and mature and to develop and strengthen their own faith, sometimes this means we've got to let them go through hard things to, to get the good character growth on the other side or to let them experience for themselves God's goodness in and through the hard. I can think of times as a parent where one of my kids was, was going through something hard and I so much wanted to jump in and fix it for them. But I had to stand there and I had to let them face it. To empathize with them, to love them, but to let them learn, to let them work it through, to let them exercise their muscles of their faith, to let them discover God's care and goodness for them. And it's not just as parents, with, with friends too, or with, with spouses, with family. If we jump in and we rescue all the time, we sometimes short-circuit the thing God is trying to do in someone's life. In many cases, we're going to have to let the hard be hard. Let it do its work and let God bring God's goodness into that situation in God's time. And maybe we can help jointly or gently to point them to God as they're going through things. Maybe they can't see at the time that, that God is good with them through the hard. And, and that God wants to bring good things out of the heart. And so maybe if we can see it, we can very gently, after we've empathized with them, suggest it. And we can pray for them that they'd begin to see it too. Um, and here we're offering our faith to come alongside of them and to strengthen them when they're weak. Well, there's a lot more to that, but just suggesting a couple things. Uh, we can go to the next slide. Jonah had to go through hard. Jonah had, or rather God, God had good plans for Jonah. God wanted to be good for Jonah. But Jonah was headstrong and rebellious and self-righteous. And Jonah couldn't see how God's way could be good. Jonah knew better. And so slowly, Jonah had to break himself up against God's loving care and goodness to get to where God could come to Jonah and save him. So what does this teach us about listening to God, about being guided by God? Well, here's my experience again with, with hearing from God. If I focus on the fact that what God may want to say to me might be hard, I'm less likely to want to listen. Compared to if I focus on the fact that God is good and God wants good for me. And yes, sometimes it takes some hard to get the good. Well, other times the good is just plain good. But either way, if I focus on the good, 
and on God's goodness, I'm more likely to listen. God told Jonah, go to Nineveh, go to your enemies, go to your people's enemies. And Jonah was like, no way, that's hard, that's bad, that's not going to turn out well for me or get me the good life that I want. God, I'm not listening to you anymore. Jonah didn't realize or couldn't see that sometimes hard is actually the path to something good. That, that, um, that he, that we sometimes can't even imagine yet what that good could be. Jonah couldn't see it. He couldn't imagine how God could be good or have something good in store for Jonah through this. Um, imagine if instead of running, though, Jonah had taken time to remember and to reflect on God's goodness and how God had been good for him and good for his people in the past and how God's character and ways are good. How might Jonah have responded differently? Well, God, this seems really hard, he might have prayed, but, but I know you are good. Please remind me of your goodness and show me your goodness so I can do this with hope and with faith that somehow it will turn out to be good. If we're going to hear from God, we've got to trust and focus on the fact that God's ways are good. Even if we don't always understand them and even if we can't always see how they'll be good. I remember one time 15 years ago, and I'll close with this story, uh, this was before I came to CBC. The elders of the church that I was serving and I made a very difficult decision that was unpopular with the congregation. We thought it was the right decision. Well, the congregation let us know how they felt. For days, I got one angry email after another. Uh, phone calls, even personal confrontations on Sunday mornings. Um, we worked through it. We tried to be gentle. We tried to explain ourselves. And after things had seemed to simmer down, it, it seemed like we got through the storm. But then a congregational meeting came up, and um, the congregation voted out one of the key elders who they connected with the decision they didn't like. And in response, a few of the other elders resigned in protest. And the majority of the young people in our church who looked up to the elder who they'd voted out, who, who loved him because he had loved them and mentored them, they all just left the church. They said, we're done. And I was devastated by all of this. I was left with one remaining elder in what felt like a pile of painful rubble. It, it was the hardest thing I'd gone through in ministry. And at that time, it seemed like nothing good could come from this. That my ministry at the church was finished. And to be honest, it took a long time for me to see that situation with anything but pain and discouragement. But as I look back now, 15 years of hindsight, right? Guess what? The church survived and rebuilt and learned from what had happened. They got healthier. They made some positive changes. And they're better than ever now. And despite some of my shortcomings as a young leader, I realized God was in charge of his church and he was able to rebuild it. 
and to bring out some beautiful things out of the foundation I laid, imperfect though it was. And as a leader for me, I, I reflected and I learned as well. I realized I had made some mistakes along the way um, and I still had some hard lessons to learn about leadership and about conflict. And I'm a much better leader as a result of having gone through that experience. Was it hard? Yeah, it was very hard. Was it good? Well, yes, God brought good out of it because God is a good God. And that's what Jonah's learning here or what God's trying to teach him. And if we want to hear from God, it's what we're going to need to learn as well. All right, time for our listening exercise. <laughs> if you're journaling these, you could get ready to do that, to jot some things down. Yeah, we're going to take a few minutes to be quiet and to listen. I invite you to get comfortable. And what I'd like to invite you to do is to focus on a time, remember a time that you experienced God's goodness. Maybe God gave you a good gift or a blessing. Maybe God felt particularly close to you. Maybe you read something in scripture that was particularly personal or encouraging. Whatever it is, um, think of a time when you experienced God's goodness. If you can't think of anything after you think about it for a minute, just pick something you're thankful for, something you're grateful for. But see if you can think of a time where you experience God's goodness. We give you a minute. Put yourself back in that situation if you, you're picturing one. Think what you saw, what you felt, how it felt. Again, if you can't think of one, just think about something you're thankful for, something good that happened to you. Again, just try to experience again that experience, that good experience you enjoyed in the past. Try to go back there and experience it again. And now we're going to listen to God and um, ask ourselves, what is a good God saying to us this morning? And God, I just pray that you would speak to us. Your word, we've just listened to and read your word. We're in your presence, and I pray that you would speak to us, your children. And God, we want to expect that it will be something good. So take a minute and think, um, reflect, Maybe it's something from the sermon, something that struck you. Maybe it's something different. But what is God saying to you this morning? <laughs> 